And it's good to worship. It's good to sing. It's good to pray. It's good to connect with God and hear from God. And it's good to gather. So much so. I want to remind you of one more thing uh, before we jump in to the message. Uh, we've got a bunch of these blue bags. Uh, we've re restocked. Uh, these allow you to collect cans, um, deliver them to any um, recycling site, or just bring them back here, either one. And then uh, what will happen is we get, we get credit, we take the funds that supports kids going to camp. We've got a bunch of kids that want to go to youth camp this year, and it's always good when we can help them out a little bit. And so it's amazing what just some bags uh, of bottles and cans will do so. I just wanted to remind you of that. Uh, while we uh, transition here just slightly, I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been in a series called Soul Care. Soul Care has largely been about, it's kind of like together at 10. It's, it's not very complicated. <laughs> it's, it's about making sure that our souls are acknowledged but even more so are cared for and that we're receiving from the Lord what it is we truly, truly need. We, we began the beginning of this back on Easter talking about our identity, the, the fact that our identity is that I am a child of God, I am loved by God, that that becomes the defining thing that is most important about me in this world. And then out of that, we began to think about, you might remember, we, we had an iceberg, and we began to think about what happens below the surface and what happens above the surface. And so we began to talk about how grace and how grace changes us below the surface, then impacts what everybody else sees above the surface. And then we began to talk about three um, dispositions, if you will, three attitudes of the soul. We, we talked about joy. We talked about contentment. And we talked about gratitude. Today is going to be slightly different than all of those things. In fact, I think today is sort of the hinge of soul care. And that may or may not make any sense. That's okay. But I think of it as sort of the hinge because we're going to pivot today from the inner side of soul care to some of the outer disciplines of soul care. I asked you at Easter to commit to six weeks we're at six weeks today. Woo, yeah. So, so next week's together at 10. And the Sunday after, just to make sure nobody like, gets me in trouble, we're going to start a new series called Soul Care 2.0. Because we've got more to talk about, and I want to make sure we go to the next level. All of that said, uh, I want to get at something that I've been trying to say the last few weeks but I'm going to make it more explicit today. I hate pain. Do you? I do. I don't enjoy it. There's nothing about it I like. But here's a harsh reality. Pain is a crucial part of what God uses to grow us in our lives. I'm not saying that God inflicts pain on us. I am saying that God takes the pain we go through in this world and he uses it to, for lack of a better way of saying it, empty me of me. Pain is a crucial part of God's pathway to growth and a crucial part of how we actually 
become stronger. Now, we don't like that because if you asked me what I would rather do about my pain, my preference nine out of 10 times would be to skip it, avoid it, find a way out of it, find a way around it. Hardly ever in life would I say, you said, Brian, you just haven't grown up that much. Might be true. But I would prefer to skip pain. And my guess is we're most, most all of us are like that. I have a confession to make. This, this ties a little bit, I promise. Here's the confession. I feel the pressure as an adult, as a husband, as a dad, as a friend, as a caregiver, as a pastor, and a lot of the different hats I wear in this world, I feel the pressure to be, to use very old language, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. Some of you remember Superman, right? Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, right? I often feel the pressure to be more Superman than Clark Kent. Do you? Is there any part of you that feels the pressure to have it all or do it all or be it all? To have to have the answers, to have to know the right thing to do in all moments? To be there for other people when there's really nothing in you to still be? <laughs> Therefore, but you just feel the pressure to have to be there. Parents often feel like they have to be able to, in all things, be all things to their kids. Husbands and wives feel the pressure often. at least externally speaking, in terms of what everybody else sees, to look like they have it all together. Certainly, you know the pressure to get it all done in your life. You know, somebody's got to run the household. Somebody's got to pay the bills. Somebody's got to take out the trash. Somebody's got to keep it all in order. Somebody's got to make sure the grass doesn't get this tall. Somebody's got to keep food on the table and make sure the baby's little bottoms get cleaned. And it doesn't matter whether you're tired or not. When the baby cries at two in the morning, it's very, very easy in our Christianity to feel like we have all the answers. Let me, let me give you an example. It comes straight out of church life. I will often have some of you say to me when we're talking about a new season of our life groups and we're thinking about launching new life groups or we're thinking about expanding our life groups and somebody who's been a Christian for a long, long time will say to me, but I don't quite feel qualified to be a life group leader. And I will say, why is that? And, 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 and vast, vast majority of the time, someone will say, because I don't know all the answers. Neither do I. But this is how we feel. Superman syndrome. 
superwoman syndrome that we have to have all the answers. We have to have it all together. So I'm going to start here today with this statement, and this is the first set of blanks in the notes if you're taking notes. And again, if you're online, we're glad you're with us as well. You can take uh, notes, you can download these and take notes online as well. Here's what I want to say. I have to learn in soul care to embrace my limits and my weaknesses and my pains because they remind me to depend upon the Almighty. To embrace my limits is to know that there is an end to Brian and what Brian can do. To embrace my weaknesses is to know that I am not everything to all people. That I don't have, spiritually speaking, all of the spiritual gifts. In fact, the whole body analogy of 1 Corinthians is dependent upon the idea that we need each other, that there is an interdependence in the body of Christ, that no one is given everything. Because there are no, frankly, super Christians. To acknowledge my pains and embrace my pains is to acknowledge that there are things about me that are still broken where I need God to work deeply in my life. This is a reminder today to choose dependence over independence. Hear me in context. I'm not at all talking about July 4th and that kind of thing. But internally speaking, to choose dependence on Christ rather than independence in Brian. To choose Weakness over strength to choose limited over unlimited. Maybe you know this and maybe you don't, but you also are far more Clark Kent, but feel the pressure to pretend to be Superwoman or Superman. I like to pretend to be mighty. Maybe you're nothing like me. Maybe this doesn't apply to you. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it does. But I like to pretend to be mighty. But the reality is that down underneath that pretending to be mighty is pride that doesn't want to admit that I'm not the all-mighty. Let me take you to what Paul said. First, or not first, Second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's been kind of in the middle of a story, and I feel like we're jumping in in the middle, but he's been boasting about his suffering. He's been talking about the fact that, that God is at work in his suffering moments and that those are causing him to learn to depend upon Christ more and more. And right in the middle of the argument, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And we certainly believe with all our hearts. This, Paul's talking about himself here, sort of in third person, but he's describing an experience he has had. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise 
and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. And even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that, now get this, this is a key phrase, so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or by what I say. Do you realize how often you and I want people to think more of us than is warranted by what we do or say? Do you know how often we get obsessed with what other people think? That's just super, it, it, it's, it's the most human thing. Particularly from that broken, sinful nature that's inside of all of us to get caught up in the comparison game and get caught up in, hey, what do other people think of me? And I've got to make sure that people think of me as up here. I refrain so that no one will think more of me than what is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Verse 7 says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited... Just pause. What conceit is he talking about? The conceited, the pride that he's talking about is people thinking more of him than is warranted by what he says or does. The pride is in wanting people to puff him up and think he is bigger, stronger, faster, able to link tall, leap tall buildings. To keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Now, this is where the pain discussion gets really, really honest, but also really, really difficult. Is he saying that God inflicted pain in his life? That God was in heaven going, I'm going to you with some pain. Or is he saying that Satan... The enemy, God's enemy, torments me with pain, but God is bigger and can use that pain in my life. I, 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 I give you the 10-second theology of pain biblically. Pain and suffering are a result of the fall, not a result of God and his creation. Remember in creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was all good, remember? It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Then there was something that was not good. Man was alone. Then he creates woman puts man and woman together was very good, right? What God creates is good. What Satan creates is a counterfeit of good, something that he wants to make you think is good, but is not good. And then we get the temptation and we get the lie and the you can't trust God and did God really say? And, and in the end, pain is really a result of everything the enemy is up to in this world. And you might remember that at the end of Revelation, it tells us 
right? That there'll be a day and a time that, that it, at the end of time history, as we think about it, there'll be no more, no more suffering, no more crying, no more grieving, no more pain. So I'm not reading this to say, hey, look, God is the one putting his thumb on the pain point in your life. But I am saying God will use the pains of this life to do something deep within your soul. That pain is an opportunity to learn something. That pain, in a sense, is an invitation to depend upon God rather than upon myself. An invitation to remember that I am not mighty, much less almighty, but he is. See, the gospel is not that I am strong enough. The gospel is not that I am good enough. The gospel is that Jesus is those things on my behalf. That's why my identity is found in being his child. So I'm going to keep reading, make sure we keep going. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. The word torment means to strike with a fist, to beat up, to cause harm. People debate greatly. I mean, you read commentaries on this chapter. What you find is that there is tremendous amount of stuff written about what exactly the thorn is. I'm going to take it kind of literally again. Together at thorn sounds like ouch. Flesh sounds like body. So I don't know. I, I don't know what it was. I, I, I have a suspicion that, you know, it, it could have been related to an eye problem. When he first saw the Lord, he had scales on his eyes. Maybe it was an eye problem. Maybe it was something physical. Maybe it was something internal that wasn't physical that haunted him. But what I do know is that the way he describes it is very, very painful. He was tormented. It was a thorn. You ever had a thorn in your shoe? You know, you go for a hike and you pick up something that makes its way through your soul, and it's just a little tiny prick in the bottom of your foot at first, but the longer you go and the more you walk and the more you pound the feet, the more you feel it. I was pulling weeds yesterday. My favorite weeds are those ones that are super thorny, right? Because it's like nature knows you're going to pull them and says, oh, no, you're not. Right? So I'm wearing gloves, and I'm very delicately. It's one of these weeds that's this tall, because in Oregon, that's all it takes is like one day of sunshine and all the rain we have, and my grass is forever to grow rightly, but my weeds can grow here in just like that, right? And so I'm delicately and gingerly and right through the glove. <laughs> Thorn in my flesh. Paul goes on. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. If you've ever known deep pain, you know this verse very well. 
You've lived it. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. I pleaded over and over and over. And he said, or but he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. That my grace is enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. If ever there was a verse in the Bible we don't like, this would certainly be up there. And if you prefer one of those preachers who tells you that God makes it all feel good and God makes it all feel happy and, and all God does is try to keep you comfortable in this world, boy, that's a pretty tough verse to make sense out of. In fact, I think sometimes, if I'm 100% honest, like the last 10% of this that I would tell you, is that our pain often becomes the thing that makes us say, forget you, God. Because in this world, in the pains of this world, there are plenty of people who walk away because God didn't do what they asked him to do. Specifically, remove their pain. I mean, my language could be stronger, you would guess, right? Right? Words we don't say in church have been yelled at God before. And here's the key to that. I mean, I sit with people semi-regularly in helping process through moments like these. And the key, I will say, is say those things to God. God can handle those things. Do it with God rather than doing it without God. If you're angry, be angry at God. If you're hurting, be hurting with God. If you're frustrated, be frustrated with God. Am I saying blame God for everything? No, 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 no. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, like, keep him in the picture. Read the Psalms, man. They're like blatantly honest to the point of sometimes using language that, again, we go, well, you can't say that in church. Brutal. You know what? God can handle that. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. And if we struggle to understand the word weaknesses, let's just see what he says here. He delights in weaknesses, but also in insults in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then, frankly, only then, I am strong. The truth is, <laughs> I always was pretty inadequate. I already had a lack of capacity. I never was Superman or Superwoman.
I never was meant to be able to do it all on my own. This life thing. Again, go back to the garden, right? They walked with God. We never were supposed to do it without God. In fact, Genesis is a garden. Revelation ends with a garden. God's involved in both. And everything in between is the pushing out of God saying, I don't need you. When my kids were little, I'm sure your kids did this as well. I'm not going to call them by name. One of them's sitting here. But every kid has this moment when they're like two, three, somewhere in there, and they're just beginning to learn to walk, and they're just beginning to learn to do things, and you want to do something for them, and they say, no. Right? For my kids, it was something like, I do it self. It's like, let me do it. I've got this. I am strong, let me show you. Most of us stay in that place for much of our lives. Let me show you how strong I am. Let me show you how good I am. The word weakness here can mean incapacity or limitation it, it, it can mean an inability to do something. You could translate this, my power is greatest when you are weak. I don't like that. But then again, if I think about the growth pivots in my life, the moments where my growth substantially happened, Far more times than not, I had to hit bottom. Far more times than not, I had to be broken. Far more times than not, I had to say I can't do it on my own. Far more times than not, I had to be weak because that's the moment where I learned that I am not strong, but he is strong and I can depend on him. Trace the growth moments in your life. And see how many of them came out of you proved to the world that you were better than everybody else, stronger than everybody else, faster than everybody else. And re-examine all of those growth moments and see how many of them came out of an admission that you, there's something you couldn't do on your own, but God got you there. But God worked anyway, that his grace was truly enough so let me keep going because we got a bunch of stuff here to fill in and i don't think you want to be here all day so let me catch you up let me uh quickly move through some of this i have to be strong comes from my pride and more times than not really means i have to look strong so that more would be warranted of me than by what I do or say. So that people will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. That I have to be strong often comes from my pride. Because what I really want is to appear strong. I was reading a book uh, recently. It's called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Some of this soul care concept comes from Peter Scazzaro, among others. Actually, the concepts have been around for centuries. 
It's just popularized in some movements that are newer these days. He says, pride has a tendency to cover over my feelings of sorrow and confusion in front of others. But humility and weakness allow me to be sorrowful and troubled in front of other people. That pride refuses to fall apart, always modeling strong faith and strong vision, especially in front of others. But weakness and humility allow me to admit when I am overwhelmed. Pride rarely wants to appear needy in front of other people. But humility and weakness will say, you know what? I need help or I need someone to pray for me. Pride tries to stand tall, to puff up, to be decisive, to look unwavering so that others know they can lean on me. But humility and weakness have no problem falling face down in front of others when I struggle to submit myself to what God would really do. Okay. This alone might be the definition or the, the very reason that when we come to church and every, you know, you know the handshake moment. How you doing? I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. How's life? It's all, it's all good. But he's telling us where strength is not found. Number one, strength is not found in denial. It's not found in ignoring my problems or escaping them or burying my head in the sand or thinking, pretending really it's not happening. There's no sense that ignoring my problems or my difficulties or my insults or any of those things he sort of outlined here is going to make them go away. But our first step is almost always to go, I don't want to handle this. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to deal with this. Strength is not found in faking it, number two. Faking it, pretending to be strong. You know the old adage, right? You got to fake it till you make it. Right? I, I, Marcy and I have been having this ongoing conversation lately about you know, how, how much large government institutions you sort of impose in your thinking this idea that they have it all together until they don't communicate well with you or you don't. I mean, I ended up, don't overread this, but I ended up in some phone tree with the IRS the other day trying to get clarity on an issue, and it got to the end and twice basically ignored me. In one case, it said, we don't have any agents available for whatever it is you need. Just try back later. This was after 10 minutes in the phone tree. The next time, it said, you know what? You can leave a callback number, and we'll call you back in 45 minutes or so. And I left a callback number, and it called. And this is the scariest thing in the world. I'm asking the IRS to call me. <laughs> Sorry again. Seems like every time Vern shows up, I mention the IRS. This is really not the case. So I leave a message, ask them to call me back. The phone rings. It's an automated thing that says, hi, you left a message for the IRS. We're going to transfer you now. It does a bzz, bzz, bzz thing and then leaves me in silence for another 40 minutes. I couldn't tell. It didn't hang up on me. 
but nobody picked up either. This is where we think. I mean, take any level of institution, and we think with all that money, they could possibly do better than we could do. With all of that size, all of that, this applies to anything, not just the government. I mean, take your favorite large organization in American life, private, public, you name it, educational, whatever, and you will find that you think that with all that cash and all those buildings, and I mean, we do this in church world, like those big churches that you would think they always got the right answers and they all, no, because bigger isn't always better and stronger isn't all it's made out to be. It's about looking, appearing, faking it till you make it. If I'm honest, it works through periods that are short, but it never carries you long-term. Denial doesn't work. Faking it doesn't work. And number three, and I've really said this already, but posturing doesn't work. Posing for others. You know, you know, there's the picture moment, and then there's the reality moment. And you know, social media is all about the picture moment, not the reality moment. So the whole comparison thing we do there just doesn't add up at all. The reality is, I had a friend say this, and I thought, oh, that's really good. I got to make sure I remember to write that down. He said, look, there are no, no people without thorns in this world, but there are a whole lot of thorny people. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's this very seductive tendency for all of us to play into this game where we just have to pretend. I'm not talking about optimism versus pessimism, but I'm going to use an example that you're going to think I am. I still believe in an optimistic faith, a faith that trusts in the Lord, a faith that believes that God is in play, and when God is in play, grace is at work. But we in church world tend to ignore or put down the Eeyores of life, if I'm honest. You know Eeyore, right? Eeyore, the gray old donkey, stood by the stream, looked at himself in the water. Pathetic, he said. That's what it is, right? Pathetic. He turned and walked slowly down the stream for 20 yards, splashed across it, walked slowly back on the other side, looked at himself again in the water and said, as I thought, no better from this side, but nobody minds. Nobody cares. Pathetic. That's all it is. There was a crackling noise in the bushes behind him, and out came Pooh. You know, Pooh, cheery. Good morning, Eeyore, said Pooh. Good morning, Pooh Bear, said Eeyore gloomily. If it is a good morning, which I doubt, he said, why? What's the matter? said Pooh. Nothing, Pooh Bear. Nothing. We can't all, and some of us don't, and that's all there is to it. Can't all what? said Pooh. Gaiety, song and dance. Here we go around the mulberry bush. I'm not complaining, but there it is. There's got to be a place for Eeyores in this world. Because we're all there in moments, right? There's got to be a place for Eeyores in the church. 
Because when I get real about my pains, I sound more like Eeyore than I do, here we go around the mulberry bush. Think of the pain Paul must have had. Why me? Why this thorn? Why won't God take this from me? I would imagine his pleading shouted that at God at times. I've sat countless hours with people asking good questions in pain. And my real belief is that it is good for the soul to, aid, to engage God with those questions. To just be totally, completely honest with God. Because pretending or posing or hypocrisy or denial, all of those things are fake. And God won't bless what is fake. You say, but, but I see people in this world get blessed all the time with all their fake stuff. Yeah, this world. I, it doesn't mean God blessed them. At some point in life, I have to learn to live not from my strengths, but from my weaknesses. If I were to stand before you and tell you how good I am, how great I am, how gifted I am, and how incredible I am, you probably won't be that impressed. But if I tell you a story of my life that's full of pain, you would probably empathize. Sometimes we do our best ministry not from our strength, but from our weakness. I think we have to let this sit for a minute because it goes against everything we want to hear, but is good for our souls. Then again, grief also. And when we're dealing with long-term pains, the kinds where we plead with God to take it away, there's always loss involved with that, and there's grief involved with that. And grief, whether we want to admit it or not, is good for the soul. That is, after all, why we sometimes say good grief. So the reality is that, and this is the one thing I'm really trying to convince us of today, and I, I will fill in the rest of the outline fairly quickly, but this is really what I'm trying to say, the whole point today, that real strength is found in admitting my weakness and learning to lean on Christ. I mean, wh where is real strength really? Is it in faking it till I make it? Or is it in admitting that, <laughs> that my faking it is no good? Strength is not found in posturing or posing or looking strong. Strength is found in an admission that I am not God. Again, the gospel is not about how strong I am or how good I am or how I can prove myself to God. The gospel is much rather about how strong Jesus is, 
how good Jesus is and the fact that he died to take my place. I mean, this may seem like a dumb question, but who is stronger, you or the Almighty? Seems like a rather simple question to me. I mean, if you ask me, Brian, on your strongest day, I don't know when it was, but it was a long time ago. I don't remember back that far. But on my strongest day, who was stronger, me or the Almighty? Pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, go a little deeper. On God's weakest day, I realize that's bad theology. Don't take too much in that. But on God's weakest day, who is stronger? Me or the Almighty? It's like, duh. It turns out God always was the answer. That God's power is best displayed in my weakness, just like light shines best in the darkness, that good shines best against the backdrop of evil, that love wins in a backdrop of hate, that color pops against the whites of this world, that the flavor of sweet things shines against the bland, that God's power best shines against the backdrop of my weakness, that that's when I tend to change, and that's when God gets the glory. Because if not, if I'm just pretending to be strong, then to use his words, when insults come, I want to think of clever ways of insulting back. I'm going to look strong. When hardships come, I want to think of clever ways for people to see me as dealing with the hardships better than everybody else. When persecutions come, I want to take up the sword and take it right back to them. When difficulties happen, I want to show people that I am enough. That's what strength in me looks like. To be clear, when he says weaknesses, he's not talking about sinful behaviors or imperfect behaviors. Paul is not talking about the bad choices we've made in life. He's talking about the opportunities where there's literally nothing you can do, but you tend to pretend that there's something you can do. And so I've just got to stop pretending. So I want to see if I can help you in these closing moments. I got four learnings. We'll go through them very fast. The first is about prayer. Prayer helps me plead with God. Prayer helps me accept God's answers. This is what I say. Lean in. Lean in. Engage God with your pain. Yell at him if you need to. He can handle that. Did my pastor just tell me to curse at God? If that's what it takes for you to be honest with God, God, God's got big shoulders. He is, after all, the Almighty. The second learning is about character, that pride is a character flaw in all of us. I love in church world when people say, look, we've got to choose righteousness on our side, so look at me. I am the standard of righteousness. That sounds so prideful. We all have character flaws, whether it be pride or anger turned wrong or impatience of some level. Most of the deep soul work that God does in our lives happens when pride gets laid aside, when the character flaw gets laid aside and we just get honest before God. 
The third thing is about security. There is true security in letting Christ be enough in my life. For he said to me, this says, that my grace is sufficient for you. The reality is I don't want Christ to be enough. I want a pain-free life to be enough. This is honestly one of the most painful reasons that pain remains in my life is because I need to acknowledge how broken I am and that I am not enough, but Jesus is. The last thing is about confidence. I told you, I don't think you blame every pain on God. I understand why we argue with God about that. I understand why we yell at God about that. As long as you're engaging God, I can understand where you're coming from. But I have tremendous confidence in what this says, that what Satan intends to harm me, Jesus repurposes to strengthen me. So when the difficulties, the the insults, the hardships, when any of that stuff happens, when Satan intends to harm me, Jesus can take that and repurpose it to strengthen me. Does that make sense? So my choice as a Christian is to fall on his grace, lean on his power, rest in his presence, rely upon his word, and just trust in his allowances to believe that Jesus is enough. So I want to end with our two prayers. And I appreciate your hanging in there with me. This is a tough message to hear. But man, is it good for the soul. We pray two prayers at the end of our messages. The first is a prayer of salvation. Jesus died on the cross from you. He rose again. He died for your sins. He loves you. He wants to walk and be a part of your life. Would you receive him? And pray just like this, a prayer of salvation, even online. Say, dear Jesus, please forgive me for my sin. I turn to you, and I believe that you died for me and rose again. So Jesus, please take over my life and take over my pains and teach me to depend upon you. Please forgive me for my sins and for trying to live without you. I give you my life. Be my God. In Jesus' name. Amen. When we pray a prayer like that, man, God rushes in the moment to enter in. That we begin a covenant with God that is, frankly, eternal. We'd love to celebrate that. We'd love to talk more about what it means. You can let me know on the communication card. You can let me know if you're here in the room by telling me in person. You can tell somebody who invited you. You can share something online. You can fill out the uh, digital communication card. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. But for the rest of us, I would imagine those of us who prayed a prayer like that years and years ago still need this This reality applied in our lives, this dependence upon the Almighty. So would you pray this prayer of application with me? Dear Jesus, I confess that more times than not, 
My pride makes me want to appear strong so that others will think more of me. So Jesus, change my focus away from others to you. And help me to fall on your grace. Lean on your power in my pain. Rest in your presence. Rely upon your word. And trust in what you allow in my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He is good. Exactly. And all the time, he is good. He is. We're going to end with a song of worship and just remind you the giving box is at the back, the baskets are at the back. Certainly online, we'd love to hear from you. I love you guys. Thanks for uh, listening to a tough message. I really think it's good for the soul. Let's stand as we conclude our worship. Mm-hmm.